Welcome to another episode of Celluloid Citizens. As always, I'm Sean M. Thompson. I'm Christopher Burke. And on the episode today, we're going to be discussing the 2013 film Proxy, which is directed by Zach Parker, written by Kevin Donner and Zach Parker, starring Christina Klebe, Alexa Havens, Joe Swanberg, Alexia Rasmussen, and others. What a job by the others, too. No, I'm just kidding. They, they, those are, um, uh, you know, I, I was kind of surprised um, that I really hadn't heard of any of these performers before. Uh, and I don't know, the movie seemed pretty well produced in a way that I kind of was surprised I've never heard anybody talk about it. Uh, and I'm not familiar with anybody involved in it. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, basically, I had, I think I saw, uh, hold on a second. I think I saw Joe Swanberg in something, but I could not tell you what it was. Mm-hmm. And I had seen Christina Klebe. She looked familiar, but I, again, I can't entirely pin down where it was. She was in the new Hellboy movie I saw, which was not that great, but <laughs> okay. she's been in things. So Well, good for her. Oh, she was in, uh, I guess she was in Rob Zombie's Halloween. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I, I did see that, that one. Might be where I, I, I think I've from. scrubbed the memory of that from my mind entirely, but I did watch it at some point. Probably for the best. It kind of takes all the psychological subtlety that makes the, you know, first film great and throws it out the window. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a place for some Rob Zombie here and there, but that one wasn't it for me. Yeah. Um. But yes. So proxy. Uh, God, what do you even? How do you even describe proxy? Um. The main things that I see it referred to in the criticism I've read is that it's it's. De Palma by well Hitchcock by way of De Palma by way of it basically trying to imitate one or both of those. Um, I don't entirely agree with that, but I can definitely see the Hitchcock, uh, especially in the second half. Yeah, uh, there's you know it's, so I, it's really it, it looks kind of like a horror movie, but I'd really call it more of a like a thriller. I mean, I know that those can be the same thing in some cases, but like it's less horror than I was expecting it to be, and more Hitchcock than than I. Guess yeah, I yeah, it it's to be. more psychological thriller. I'd say there's nothing. I don't know that there's anything particularly scary about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's violence that really you would... It's pretty brutal and you would normally associate with a horror movie, but yeah, I mean, it could just like be also any, any crime violence thriller. And um, the subject matter is obviously horrific. It's just, I don't know that I'd think of it as horror. Yeah, me neither. Um, but yeah, so it's a very twisty-turny kind of film. Um one thing, you know, obviously full spoilers ahead. I say this every time, but there's a reason. Um, so I don't feel bad about spoiling anything as I go forward. <laughs> I, I quite like Might that uh, you're introduced to a character and you're like, oh, okay, this is my main character. And then at about the hour mark, it's like, and she's murdered. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, that that's a tough thing to pull off where you just completely switch main characters halfway through. And I mean, I think it handled that aspect of it pretty well. Um, and especially it lines up with the themes too, and which we'll, we'll be able to talk about more in detail when we get to the plot. But, you know, the, the transition of characters makes sense, uh, especially in light of the title and when you understand how it applies to the violence in the, in the film. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, basically, uh, to start, let me just go back to the names. I've already forgotten them. Um, all right. Well, we've got Esther, Esther as the yes. uh, as the presumable main character at the opening. She's right. uh, so she's we, in uh, yeah, her we begin with Esther in the hospital. Um getting a uh, 
she's, you know, very pregnant and she's having some tests done on the baby just to see if the baby is healthy, what the heartbeat's like and all that. And uh, the baby is fine and she leaves the hospital and proceeds to be uh, clocked over the head and dragged into an alley. And then uh, somebody basically savages her pregnant belly with a brick. Yeah, that was uh, that was a rough start to things, and um, <clears throat> honestly, I still was sort of thinking it'd be more along the lines of horror because, like, that's such a deliberately provocative and brutal thing to see, and and the way they sort of staged it with this vague red figure that you you know, it's slightly out of focus, and you don't see the characters above their shoulders, so you don't know who it is, and all you can identify them by is a red jacket of some kind, and yeah, I mean, they just they focus on the the beating of her pregnant belly with a brick. So, I mean, I guess content warning there for some folks, uh, because that was that was pretty upsetting. Yeah, it was definitely upsetting. Um, so we uh, we sort of follow her as she sort of groggily comes to in the ambulance. And then she's you know, more or less out. And then she wakes up in the hospital to a detective asking her some questions. Yeah, they, before we get to that part, they show they actually show a big part of the surgery. They have to like remove the baby from oh, her yeah, womb. They, and they do basically show, them show a bunch of that the baby, which is pretty gnarly. Yeah, and uh, you know, kind of in the I guess it's important to characterize I guess the opening couple of scenes where she's actually interacting with people consciously. She's she see there's something about her that's a bit aloof. She seems very alone and just kind of almost emotionally flat uh, in a way that that makes you wonder if either. She's experienced some trauma that's going to be relevant or I don't know. She seems very alone. And she mentions at some point that she has nobody, you know, it's basically her. Yeah. Yeah. So she's a, she's a long pregnant loner that loses the baby and uh, we get a detective. I will admit, I think the performances are generally decent, but there are some of the supporting cast. Um, they're not the best performances. Uh, this detective does fine, but there are, I mean, there are other people I can think of that just sort of have sort of speaking extras roles that are, I don't know, they just seemed a little amateurish. Yeah. I, I, none, none of them really stood out to me, but I guess I didn't notice any that I, that I felt were especially bad. Do you have any characters in mind that, um, that were particularly I mean, the detective wasn't great. There's a nurse that she talks yeah. to at one point that's a little wooden. Um, mostly yeah. just like peripheral characters, like, uh, mainly like almost like speaking extras roles because, you know, it's not like the extras do a bad job. It's just sort of the, mm -hmm. you know, if, if she goes into a, like, uh, at the newspaper office, the secretary she's talking to is a little wooden because it's like, you see the main, you see, uh, Christina Klebe and her acting and then it's juxtaposed with someone who's like, who are you trying to talk to? Oh, oh, yeah. I do that's not true. know who that. But I mean, you know, that's, that's sometimes that's budgetary. You know, you work with what you can get. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think that um, I mean, there are some ways where I think you can tell that um, the budgeting wasn't very high. But I mean, I would say this is like at the high end of an indie budget kind of movie, if that yeah. makes any sense. I mean, I don't know dollar amounts, but like that's sort of the, the vague feel I get from it. Um, and I think they probably used a fair amount of it on like the the really cool scene in the middle of the movie that transitions everything into a, like a different kind of movie, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm looking 
on the IMDb, and I don't really see a cost associated, but if I had to guess, probably under a million, yeah. Listen up, Proxy. We're coming by to audit your books and make sure you hire better actors next time. No, no I mean, it's. <laughs> I should say it's not enough to take me out of the film entirely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I did like the... um. You know, the presumable protagonist, the woman who's assaulted. I, oh, I think did, that yeah, all the main she was really weird. Job. That was cool. Yeah, it's a very strange character that like there's all this emotional stuff that's implied in the performance that you never really get answered to much of a de- you know a significant degree. Um, so that's that's one thing that I thought was actually pretty pretty strong in general. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of stuff that's sort of open to interpretation. Um, but yeah, so. Um, uh, Esther is interviewed by this detective who more or less asks her, do you have any enemies? Do you know anybody who would want to, you know, harm you? And she's sort of sarcastic about it. Like, you mean who would want to kill my baby? No. <laughs> yeah, she's got her emotional responses to him. I, I mean, I know that it's wrong to, like, expect a certain kind of response from someone who's just been a victim of such an attack. But, like, they clearly stage it in a way that we're supposed to think something's a bit off with her, I think. It's one thing in real life versus, uh, you know, another thing in performance where, like, you have to indicate that something is a little bit off with this person's yeah, responses. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't do really that. seem, she seems, like, distraught in a way, but she doesn't really seem that traumatized. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't seem as, she almost seems like uh, this is just another thing in her life to deal with, and she's been through a bunch of things like this, and she's going to get through another one. So, yeah, that could be one way of explaining you know, a somewhat flat response, you know, that, I mean, I think that probably happens in people who've been traumatized in the past sometimes. Yeah, there was one line they gave the detective, I was sort of like, oh, we're keeping that, where she's, where he asks, who's the father, and she goes, a sperm bank, and he goes, a sperm bank? And I'm like, okay, that's not that weird, bro, (laughs) come on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he was kind of, I think that he was meant to be a nice, empathetic detective, but, like, he was also an asshole, because I just, one of the first things he says to her is that, oh, you should, you should feel lucky. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's true. like, I know that sometimes sort people's of a, sort of an asshole. Yeah. And, and I think that like she, the way she interplays with that is, is relevant throughout the rest of the movie where she, she's kind of skeptical of his claim that she should feel lucky. And then like, they mentioned a couple of other things later on down the line, I think uh, about being lucky about in terms of um, dealing with certain things in life. It doesn't, that doesn't that come back later in the second half with Melanie, if I'm not mistaken, but anyway. Um, it's, it seems like that was like kind of a subtle theme that they they kept. Yeah, I mean, I can't. Like I that. think. I mean, I do think um, Melanie tells the husband at one point, like you should be something like, yeah, you should be thankful that you're. You should feel, yeah, something like that. Yeah, maybe it warrants a second watch, but uh, yeah, and so the the detective is just sort of politely asking her questions that could help the investigation and that kind of ends up not going anywhere um no no yeah, i kind I of expected the detective to, but... to it doesn't have to but I, I kind of did think that there would be some kind of parallel subplot about this crime actually being investigated even if it's just for like 30 seconds at a time in between other scenes yeah that's true they they definitely um while i did like the film yeah they definitely had a I mean, some of the stuff I feel like was intentionally vague, like as to like make it seem more mysterious. Like later on, we see um, Melanie and what she ends up doing with her son, for instance. It's never Mm -hmm. entirely explained. You sort of you get a sense of it by the end. But but yeah, the detective stuff and the case stuff, 
I, it just sort of feels like they never investigate. Yeah, which, I mean, that might not be all that far out of line with reality, because I don't think that uh, most of these types of crimes get solved. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. And they didn't have much, she didn't give them much to go off of either. I mean, she didn't have anybody she knew of, and I don't think she even had a description for them either. That's true. Yeah, I mean, because she was, she was unconscious, I think, yeah, when, like when she it was, was staged for the... So, like, she's like, it's a person. I don't know. Look for someone <laughs> with a brick. Yep. Yeah, and then, you know, so after the detective leaves, she she gets a parade of people going, or, well, they talk about there being a parade of people in the hospital that are going to be coming in to just help her out with various things and get her discharged and stuff like that. So the first person she talks to next is uh, kind of like a, an immediate uh, counselor of some kind that yeah, some is trying to help her worker. talk about trying to transition back into life after the assault and, and finding, like, long-term trauma care and things like, and a support group, I think she mentioned. So the support group element comes into play and that becomes a, a, the major plot point uh, because this is a woman who basically has said that she has nobody, but she has a fish, you know, <laughs> I think the counselor asks who she can go back to, to help her. Oh, and she I've says got my her fish, fish. And then they immediately cut to her at home and the fish is dead. Yeah, that was pretty rough Poor fishy. Um, but yeah, she's got a lonely apartment. It's, it's kind of, um, they just kind of show her wandering around the house, checking that stuff out, checking the fish out, dealing with that stuff and not really, seeming to have much direction about what to do next. She she definitely seems like a, a lost soul of sorts. Yeah, and they have this very effective shot where you get the sense it's the first time she's really looked at herself in a mirror since the attack, but there's all this um, scarring along her stomach that she sees in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they make a point of showing uh, all the all the wounds that have just been you know, starting to heal and how how disfiguring it has been to her, her belly. And uh, they they present her as a person who is kind of not not really, not just lonely, but in, in need of validation of various kinds. And they, they explore how she gets that later on. Yeah. Um, but the at the moment that she's in front of the mirror showing her injured stomach, it's, you know, it's pretty, you know, it looks pretty awful to have lived through. And yeah. uh it's it's a really I mean I just think it's a good quiet moment for her to be processing this on camera, uh, and or trying to. Yeah, I mean they make it a point in the hospital to emphasize, you know, the detective and mainly the social worker asks, "Do you have a support network? Do you have like a spouse or you know parents or relatives?" And she's like, "No, I have no one." So they go out of their way to like emphasize that. For the most part, she's a very lonely person. Yeah. And uh, and soon after that, you hear a, an incoming call uh, that goes to her voicemail. And, you know, it's a woman's voice, it sounds like. Uh, fairly standard kind of message, I think. But it, it sounds somewhat like, I don't know, gruff. Just saying, hey, it's it's me, Lori. Um, call me back. Or so. I, don't, I don't remember the exact message. But yeah, clearly somebody's trying like to get in, someone's trying to get in touch with her that she doesn't want to talk to. Yeah, so she has someone theoretically, but there's a problem there of some kind, and she's she's not confronting yeah, it directly. Yeah, you know, or early like days that. of the movie, you're not sure if that's just an estranged relationship or if it's a it could even be a relative or something. Yeah, um, I was assuming it might be a, her mother. That was my yeah, first yeah. assumption, but um, so yeah, eventually we sort of um, is there a passage of time? Does it like specify how much time happens or? 
You know, I think that the time frame stuff is deliberately a little bit disorienting until later on in the movie, but it, it kind of seems like she's drifting about on her own for a couple of days, and then mm-hmm. uh, she starts going to the support group. But yeah, they, they leave the time, the sense of time is kind of deliberately vague. I saw it as like a couple of weeks, maybe. Oh, it's a couple of weeks. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's I, hard that's to tell. the thing. I don't know if they said or not. But yes, eventually L- later she ends on, up at this uh, support group. Um, yep. And that is where she meets uh, Melanie. Yeah. Yeah, Melanie is uh, kind of a contrast to the to Esther. You know, Esther's brown hair, kind of mopey, or at least a little quiet and and introverted. Yeah, this is a woman who is tan and blonde and and clearly somewhat extroverted. And, you know, something about the way that she just sort of she does try to go out of her way to welcome Esther because she can tell Esther's new and might be feeling lonely. And this is a support group for traumatized women. So somebody there is probably going to do some outreach of some kind. And, you know, so they they strike up some conversations and they end up going for coffee afterwards. Um, And so, like, there's something. I think, you know, the, the Melanie's performance and you know the way she's written, I think it's the perfect balance of this could just be a legitimately sincere person who just wants to be nice to somebody new who yeah. has experienced something horrible. Or she could be just doing it a little bit too much in a way that's slightly off putting and maybe there's an ulterior motive there. So I thought they handled that balance really well because yeah, it does turn out that there's like, more to Melanie. Like, like a genuinely kind uh, person, but she does seem very eager to... Um, very eager to, you know, make a new friend and they immediately go out for coffee. And, um, so yeah, I mean, Melanie is very, um, I don't know if that I thought she had her ulterior motives necessarily at first, but I did think she was very quick to, um, buddy up to Esther, possibly even in a romantic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that becomes important subtext later on, too. So, I mean, I can definitely see some of that being present. Yeah, but at this point, you don't really know uh, the, the stuff that Melanie she, gets up to. So, you just yeah, assume she's she just very friendly. Starts, yeah, it, it's mostly kind of just getting to know you, Chatter. And then at, at some point around this time, Melanie shares you know why she's in the support group. And it's because a drunk driver killed her child and husband. Uh, I think it was a couple years ago, she said. Yeah, she says it was a few years back. And, and, um, uh, and she also she also urges, you know, uh, Esther to, to not feel pressured to share what happened to her since they've I, I think that she says, you know, just you can tell me next time or something like that, which I think, you know, there's there's a good deal of empathy there one way or the other, even if there's more going on. So that's a, that was a good staging or a good acting performance there. Yeah, I do think that the. Um, I do think the performance or at least the the an element of the plot remind me a bit of fight club, at least the beginning. Definitely. In terms of, I was absolutely thinking about that. Um, in terms of basically someone who intentionally goes to a support group sort of with fraudulent reasons so they can get, uh, attention. Yep. Yeah. Marla, Marla, Marla. Yeah. I I thought that was, that was one of the first things I thought about. And I'm like, they're kind of inverting this in a way by, instead of having this like, Real roughshod, kind of crazy lady, weirdo on the fringes of society, and contrasting that with Melanie, who is kind of presented as your textbook, uh, like middle class in a successful yeah, family, she's like warm doing and well with everything. and smiley. Yeah, there's no clear pathology there, uh, at least not yet. Uh, yeah, but so 
uh, we sort of go forward a little bit. Esther seems like she's having a hard time. Um, so admittedly, I'm getting the order of events a little confused at the beginning. Do we see what happens in the department store first, or do we see um, Esther's girlfriend first? Um, that is a good question. They're they're close to one another. I think we see the job application at the department store first, and that's okay. also where we learn a little bit more about Melanie. Uh, and then I think it's when she comes back from all that 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 we meet the girlfriend. Okay. Uh, so a, basically, you know, um, Esther really likes Melanie. She sort of hit it off with her, and she uh, she's having a, a rough day, and she tries to get in contact with Melanie, and Melanie isn't around, and. She goes to the support group hoping to see Melanie, and Melanie isn't there. Um, so then I believe it's either later that day or the next day. Uh, she goes to a department store to apply for a job, basically. And she... Yeah, it's it's during the same time that Melanie's, like, not available by phone. This, is, this happens right after she calls okay. her, I think. And uh, she sees Melanie in sort of um, in a hat and shorts and... Just walking around this department store, and so she's sort of following her probably to ask, like, why didn't you answer my calls? Why weren't you at the support group meeting? And uh, this is when she sees Melanie start flipping out in this department store going, I can't find my son. I've lost my son. And the manager goes up to her and starts asking her, well, what color hair does he have and what was he wearing? And she's sort of like, Melanie is sort of breaking down into tears and flipping out. And um, she doesn't notice that Esther is there. And Esther's sort of like hidden behind a rack of clothing watching all this. Yep. And and she had been there to fill out an application for a job, which I thought was interesting because she's at least trying to move forward in some way. I mean, she obviously she has to because she has to have yeah. some money to live on. But uh, I thought that was interesting that they made a point of it being a job application, uh, you know, just kind of implying try her trying to get a fresh start after this event. And then. She gets tangled up in this business with Melanie here, uh, where she she follows her out. Uh, I think she follows her out of the uh, department store into the parking lot, and and then we find that Melanie goes into an SUV and retrieves a small child who seems to be the child that has been missing. Yeah, and she heads back inside, and so Melanie isn't really sure what to make of that, obviously, because this woman that she met, who said her son was dead, is now walking around with a small child and flipping out in a department store that he's missing. Uh, but Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of become a, a bit of a standard uh, go-to explanation in, in thrillers, but we're, we've got strong implications of Munchausen by proxy, uh, perhaps some Jew-own influence there, but uh, that doesn't end up being really uh, even all that significant, uh, no. I would say. It's really about something else. Yeah, but so um, when uh, Esther gets home, she gets a message from Melanie saying... Hey, I had some stuff to do today, but I'd love to meet you for um, for coffee or dinner again. Uh, so they meet up again. Um, things obviously don't go well. Yeah, don't, well, don't we meet the girlfriend uh, you're first? You're right, but I before this, we do... Um, and this is done in an interesting way, so... This is like a, you know, standard sort of thriller stuff where it's like someone at a someone is at the fridge and they open the door and we, the audience see that someone has snuck by, but the person in looking inside the fridge can't see that. And we notice it's the same, yeah, sort we of see a little bit of red, it's the same red sweatshirt 
that her attacker who uh, hit her when she was pregnant had on. And uh, we we sort of had this fairly abrupt cut where um, where she's like grabbed by the person in the sweatshirt, and then we cut and it sort of out of focus, but it looks like there's someone uh, having sex with uh, Esther. And then we cut and it's this woman lying next to Esther in the bed, who we learn is um, Annika. So they, they wake up together and they clearly know each other and uh, this uh, has been a consensual yeah, it's been like a consensual uh, affair, sort even though of, it was um, kind of a new... home invasion sex play type of thing. That or just some kind of a surprise, who, who knows, but in any case, they, they have some sort of relationship and you know, they, they take a little bit of time here to establish a, a, some power dynamics between the two and it's very clear that Annika is a dominant person and possibly even a violent person from the yeah. way she talks and possibly an abusive person. Uh, and Esther, as we've seen by now throughout the whole movie, she's very kind of reserved and introverted and not a whole lot of self-confidence. So like that, it kind of comes into a sharper relief here when they're in bed yeah, together I mean, and, and talking in various ways. So Brian and I get into this conversation all the time um, because I can sort of run my thoughts by him since he is a gay man. Um, we get into like there's a lot of there's a lot of um push to have every gay character on screen be a positive representation and i understand it i certainly mm-hmm. do because certainly for long enough we've had nothing but more or less queer coded villains you know you got ursula from the disney film like basically like whole slew of disney villains that are queer coded and all sorts of other stuff that have made people think gay equals evil kind of a thing but we are, yeah. I think, sort of at the point where it w- it's nice to see a gay character that's portrayed like a straight character. Like, they can have flaws. Yeah. Yeah, they're just, I mean, they're kind of a shitty person, but they're not, like, out-and-out out evil as a result of their homosexual right. behavior. Right, you just get the like sense that. she's like, there's a, a difference between this because and... she's a shithead, not because she's gay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of the part of being uh, treated as an equal is just recognizing that, uh, you know, we don't have to just represent gay people one way. And, you know, the opposite of the opposite of queer coding would be like just automatically assuming a gay person is good because they're gay, which is just equally. I mean, maybe not equally, but it's dangerously close to that sort of magical black person territory of like every black person in a movie for a while was like, you know, I'm the janitor, but I can also do magic. And that's sort of the other end of it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, okay, I mean, um, I, I did want to bring up before I forget, uh, even though uh, uh, Machado's uh, autobiography is obviously, it's mostly real, uh, she brings up how she was in a an abusive uh, lesbian relationship and um, how she talks about how that's obviously not often talked about or portrayed in media so it was interesting to see this and yeah it just sort of made me think of her uh book which i'm I'm blanking on the name now but yeah i've read some of her stories but i haven't read the the non-fiction i did the um, audiobook of so it i liked it a I lot mean... but it was very it's very sad because it's literally just her being like i fell in love with this woman and then she proceeded to like be verbally and physically abusive Ugh, that sucks yeah 
Uh, but I mean, yeah, it's it's I mean, it's a real thing that happens. And I'm sure that there are some unique dynamics in homosexual yeah, relationships yeah. regarding bullying and well, abuse that don't necessarily happen. Well, I think what got into a bit was how, uh, especially in a gay relationship, there's already so much stigma about it that a lot of women and men don't want to bring up that their partner is abusive because that just seems like adding fuel to the fire for you know, uh, homophobic people who would be like, well, obviously, because homosexuality is mm-hmm. wrong. Yeah, yeah, like, there's no abuse of heterosexual relationships out yep. there at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, I, I think, you don't see this no, on camera that's, I all think that that's often, why I really. keep like, uh, you, harping on it is, yeah, it's not that, um, it's not that common. I Yeah, I mean, apart from, like, the fact that she's literally, like, a violent person who's convicted of assault, like, I've known gay women who had somewhat similar personalities to to her, you know, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't think that they would be abusive people, but, like, they were very, like, coarse yeah, and, yeah. and crass no. and somewhat domineering in conversations, and, you know, so, I mean, she goes over the line in a lot of ways, but it feels pretty, like, a pretty realistic yeah, I mean, drawing know, obviously of there's the a stuff. kind of relationship. I mean, one of the big things we find out, which definitely turns the movie on its head and makes you rethink the beginning is that uh, Annika actually was the one that um, that beat up and made uh, <clears throat> excuse me Esther lose her baby but we find out that it was on purpose like Esther was okay with it mm-hmm well that ties into the whole theme of the the movie proxy like the it, it comes to pass that there are multiple instances of violence being enacted by a third party on the presumption that they're fulfilling someone's wishes and someone's yeah, desires that they fair, just don't have Esther the courage never, to go through. Esther never outright says, like, I did not want my baby. I'm glad you killed my baby. But she doesn't yeah, it's seem kind of like just all implied in the torn com- up about it either. Yeah, I mean, I thought it had been prearranged yeah, between like, the I two of them. Like, as, like, she was going to be like, I don't really want this baby anymore. Could you do something about it? Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know why this is a better solution than going to an abortion provider. But there's all kinds of reasons that people can't get yeah, to an abortion I mean, provider. So it's, who knows? I mean, but yeah, this is the first. Um, this is the first part of the movie where I was like, "Oh wow, really? Okay." Getting a little weird here. Yeah, it, it just doesn't stop getting weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it definitely goes in some directions, but like, I mean, we've established that, you know, this, this color of red is associated with yeah. Annika. You know, she has a red, you know, we end up finding out later it comes back in other ways with key, like, physical objects that are significant to the plot. Um, but after we kind of establish that they have this sexual relationship of some kind, um, we get back into the, the whole Melanie and Esther thing. Uh, but before, actually before that, uh, Annika mentions that, like, they had some agreement that Esther would not contact her, but Annika would contact Esther. And so Annika's pissed off at Esther for not answering the phone in that earlier scene when she yeah, had to leave a voicemail. Some... So like, she's very yeah, controlling. The exchange like, was something along would... the lines of like, don't con like you don't call me because obviously if I just intentionally killed your baby, that's not a good look. But I think yeah. I, I saw it more like Esther was confused. Like she was like, well, you told me not to talk to you. Uh, but yeah, I think that she could be confused, possibly. I, I don't know. I think they leave that vague. But it could also that be, you know, I mean, to... like even if you wanted someone to kill your baby, that's still a very traumatic event. You might not want to talk to people for a while. 
Yeah, e even if it was on purpose, she probably needs some recovery time because she was knocked out and through surgery and all this. Yeah, other stuff. yeah. So, and but um, Annika does mention actually in this exchange, I think that um, that she might have been following Esther and see and saw her with Melanie. Yeah, well, well, I think what happens next, or maybe it happened right before, but yeah, uh, Mel Melanie comes over to Esther's house. They they catch up on the phone after the missed connection before. Uh, so maybe this did happen right beforehand, but anyway, they're close yeah, to the same yeah. point in the movie. But yeah, Annika, Annika seems to think that Melanie is over at Esther's house for purposes of sex. Uh, and while Melanie is over there, essentially Esther makes a pass at her and, and kisses her. And Annika's, or uh, Annika, yeah. Melanie's disgusted by it, and she's like, I'm, I'm not a lesbian, and she, like, she just leaves in a very awkward huff. Yeah, but not before Esther mentions, I, I saw what you did, like, I know, I know that your son is still alive. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, she does mention that before she leaves, because that's sort of, you know, she, she tries to go for the past, and then, um, Melanie's so disgusted, and then, I think... Being hurt as she was, Esther then brings up, well, I saw what you did with your your son. Yeah, so, I mean, they both have something on one another. And there's, it seems like there's a potential that they're going to use, each of them is going to use that information against one another in yeah. some way, possibly. Um. So I believe the immediate next thing that happens is that Esther breaks into Melanie's house, right? Uh, let's see. We, um, yeah, I think that is about the next thing that happens. She, she, she's been rejected by Melanie, but like, there's something that's driving Esther, and she goes out. She, she has something that has Melanie's address on it. I forget how she finds oh, the address. Oh, and before but, this, I um, yeah, forgot to mention. Uh, we later learn this is Annika's truck, but she goes and finds Annika's red truck and notices, and she remembers mm -hmm. or notices that there's a spare key in the wheel well so she takes that and seals the truck to get to uh to get to melanie's house yeah and i thought the so like the basically the crux of the movie happens like right around here it's, it's almost exactly around the midpoint of the film uh and yeah it's like the the film is about two hours and this is about a minute f or sorry an hour five i think yeah. Yeah, and, and so bef bef actually a little bit before that one other thing that ends up being somewhat important is that you know esther and melanie before uh as before Esther tried to kiss Melanie, you know, they had a nice friendly chat in the the park that Melanie goes to. She says that, you know, the park reminds me of her son, uh, of my son who died. Uh, and so she just goes there to feel centered or to get a little bit of positivity from the other children uh because the, the park comes back into yeah. play too, so we should mention that. It does. Yeah. Um but yes, yeah, so uh Esther you know, she she um, she shows up to um, Melanie's house and she kind of looks in through the window and notices uh, Melanie's husband, who is played by uh, Joe Swanberg, who is playing Patrick. And it's sort of a normal, very normal um, domestic life. Maybe the husband's a little maybe the husband's a little bit of a dick, but it's it's more or less normal, you know. They're talking about who's going to who's going to take the baby or I guess it's a topic. It's his night to do the bath. Who's going to take our son, you know, to have the bath. And she says, I did it last time. And he says, I'm watching the game. And it's just 15 sort minutes. Of, you know, portrait of a. 
Oh, you go. Oh, I was just going to say, oh, it's just 15 minutes till the game's over. And there's only, can't you do it again? Uh, but she's like really, he's being very dismissive to her and she's very clearly got some long running frustration with him as a partner in this, uh, in this whole household thing. So there's a little bit of trouble yeah. under the surface that, that we're seeing. Yeah, but so um, Esther is basically able to sneak into the house without any of them knowing, and she goes upstairs to where, um, and what's their son's name? Oh, well, he's Peyton. I, think, I don't know. Yeah, if, she she saw Peyton, Peyton through yes. the uh, through the front door. She looked in on him, and he they exchanged eye contact, and then he kind of ran away. So she's oh, right, doing yes, all this. But so she, <laughs> she's doing all this creeper stuff around the house and moving very slowly. Yeah, and so she ends up going up the stairs and she must've followed Peyton into the bathroom where the bath is going. And I would have to rewatch, but I think she had a crowbar with her. She does have a crowbar indeed. So, you know, cause when, when, um, eventually Melanie ends up going upstairs and finding Peyton is more or less dead, uh, face down in the tub. I think it was implied that, um, that Esther, Basically beat him to death with a crowbar and then put him in the tub. Oh, okay. See, I thought that she had just drowned him, but they, they don't really... Direct... She might have just drowned him, though. It was sort of vague. I, I mean, thought the crowbar was the to other... break in. It could have just been the crowbar was to break into the yeah. house, yeah. But in any case, she killed the kid, uh, and that's pretty clear, even if it's a little bit ambiguous about how it happened. Uh, and so... Right, yeah. I mean, he clearly died. <laughs> he either drowned or was beaten or both, but he is dead. Yeah, and... Uh... And uh, Melanie, obviously, is flipping out. She takes her son out and is trying to do CPR on him and she screams at Patrick who goes up the stairs to call an ambulance. And, uh, this is when we kind of cut to the corner of the room and we see that Esther is still there. Yep. Yeah. And she comes out and they, and she says something to the, sorry, you uh, go. I was just gonna say, she comes out and they, they start talking and, uh, and, and Melanie realizes that Esther has done this, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, basically she says something to the effect of, um, you wanted this. I gave you what you couldn't do. And on the one hand, you're like, that's sort of, that sounds sort of insane. But on the other hand, you're like, well, I mean, you do go to support groups for people that don't have children anymore. And you intentionally go to department stores and pretend like your son is missing. Yeah. And, and that combined with the fact of what uh, Esther has just done, uh, she didn't have the courage to terminate her pregnancy. And she seems to have arranged a violent attack on herself to end it. Uh, to have somebody else do what she didn't have the courage to go through. So she's essentially taking one of her own pathologies and applying it to Melanie. And Melanie uh, doesn't react that well to that. And the uh, But the husband's still off, off stage. Uh, it turns out that he's gone to go uh, retrieve a gun. Uh, he brings in a shotgun because I, I guess he's heard uh, the voices or he... I, I forget if he sees Esther and then goes and gets it or I if mean, he heard her. Or it's what. basically like he knows his son is dead. Yeah. And he must have... I th I don't yeah I think he either heard two voices or he noticed the woman in the room before he left. Yeah, yeah, but the husband is absolutely. When he comes back with the shotgun. Yeah, I mean, just the husband is absolutely um, just kind of out of it. Like he's he's just got this dead look in his face, and this is when this is when everything starts to really slow down, and this is really when it starts to feel a lot more Hitchcockian with the kind of orchestral music that they use, and uh, and the way that they just kind of slow down and really make everything as uncomfortable as possible. Um, and he basically in slow motion shoots her, you know, it, from a few feet away. So it's, it's a very, 
explosively bloody affair. And, and I thought that the way that this was yeah, staged was cool. Yeah, they love in this scene to have blood and guts sort of flying around. Um, and yeah, you see um, Esther's face, and then behind her you see this huge explosion of like blood and viscera onto the wall. Yeah. Then she falls into the tub, and um, this is where we get... I had seen a couple... Um, screenshots of the film and i had seen this one in particular a couple times where she's in the tub screaming and the the water is all just entirely just like blood red full with her blood and uh this is when patrick goes up and he finishes the job he slowly raises the shotgun to her head and while she's still screaming um and then off screen he shoots her in the head we get this huge spray of blood and viscera into his face. And all the while, um, Melanie's basically screaming in silence, going like, no, you know. Yeah, and, and she's getting showered in blood. I think they spend more time showing the blood hitting her, which I think has has more of a connection to the story because you know the presumption is that Esther was doing some of this on Melanie's behalf. And so there's this blood blood bond yeah, between yeah. the two of them. And I was honestly, you know, good on you, movie. I did not see this coming. <laughs> I thought for sure that she would escape or that, like, she gets shot but lives. They'd, co- they'd combine forces but, and no, kill the she's husband. she's just gone. And then I thought, maybe it's going to become a ghost thing. But no, no, it isn't. They kind of seemed like they were going to start taking it in that direction because there's a point shortly after where they do something that's kind of confusing and ambiguous, but it, it makes it look like the husband is retrieving esther's body and taking it down to the basement and that she's somehow still alive and he's going to be like torturing her for information or something because they don't he doesn't know who she is and he doesn't know about the fact that esther and melanie know each other this is just a random person as far as he knows and that becomes significant yeah, later too. so that is the one thing i'm still confused about having finished this now because i thought that was going to show that uh esther was somehow lived through her injuries mm-hmm. but they constantly say how she, you know esther died and the detectives came and got her dead body. So yeah. it's like, I don't know how that would work because we are hearing screaming coming from the basement. Yeah. I, I guess what that has to be is just a way of showing his fragmentation psychologically. And like he, he becomes obsessed with this event and he can't recover from it. And I guess he's going down into the basement to cry or to be alone in some way and to ju- or to just take out some of his anger. I don't know because he keep because he comes up covered in blood at one point. Oh yeah, so that that's, uh, that doesn't. I add almost up. wonder if he just kidnapped a random woman and started harming her just because he was so uh, basically messed up in the head from his son's death. That could be, but I, I don't, honestly, this might be a shortcoming. But of it the wouldn't movie. make. But the thing is, yeah, if he's doing that, there's no real explanation as to why yeah and I, I mean i don't even think you necessarily have to have a good explanation for it but like you there should be at least a little bit of clarity there that is not given because even if it's artistically i'm ambiguous, gonna have to read up about this because i i don't know there's got to be someone who actually know. like maybe there's just something i didn't notice on the first go around like a very subtle line that explains it it could be, but I think we walked away from it with the same general feeling about where it was trying to go, and then it just kind of didn't, and yeah. there's no real explanation for some of the events that you see where the husband's coming out of the basement all bloody, and it's like, okay, the cops took her body, so whose body's getting him bloody? Is he hurting himself? I mean, like, at <laughs> one point I thought that maybe that was Melanie, but... Yeah, they, they staged it in a way know. that Melanie you think it could be. Melanie seems fairly with it, like she won't put up with him, because, I mean, she's very quick near the end to just be like... Well, actually, he's the one that breaks it off, so... Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, there's a bit of a confusion there, I'd say, and that maybe that's um, something for a, for a rewatch at some point. And yeah, uh, yeah. But the, you know, the way this is all staged, I thought that was awesome. You know, I would I would honestly probably just rewatch this middle um, big scene in the house uh, a couple of times, just because I think it's interesting and it's 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 gorgeously shot. Yeah, it's very shot. well done. And then the aftermath too is very interesting, where they have um, Melanie. And they sort of have this like dissolve around her as she stays on the same point of the couch. And it's like, I'm fairly sure it's something along the lines of like, there's mourners in black behind her and then her outfit changes and like the house slowly gets a little dirtier Mm -hmm. to the end of the transition where she's just in like a, a bathrobe and looks very tired and. Yeah. I thought that was really effective too. Like they, she just looks totally devastated and she can't, she can't function, you know, I mean, she's just lost. She's just experienced the kind of loss that she's been pretending for so long to have experienced. And yeah, now she has it's to experience very, it for real. It's important, too, because it is a, like, careful what you wish for moment because, you know, this thing that she's been pretending, that she's been wanting, maybe not wanting to happen, but wanting sympathy for, now she actually has to live through what it's like. And she doesn't want to talk to anyone. Someone calls her at one point, like, let's go to dinner and or coffee. And she just tells her, like, no, I'm not going. Yeah. That that is interesting because after she sort of comes out of it a little, you know, I interpret it as maybe a couple of weeks later, uh, she does start yeah. to have a, a need for socializing, and she starts to reach back out to these people. And they're, you know, some of them are kind of helpful. They have lunch, but they very quickly become very distant. And, and that's a, I think, a very yeah. common experience of somebody grieving a big loss is that, you know, some people are going to be very uncomfortable trying to socialize with you, and they're not going to be sure what to say. And sometimes they're just going to take that and just not socialize with you or they'll do it once and then think that that's all uh and it very quickly becomes clear that melanie is actually desperate for this kind of comfort that she was getting from the support group before but now she has a real need for it and she can't seem to get it yeah and now that she has the real need people don't want to really help her as much yeah i did actually i used to be a home health aide with um older people and i actually ran into this a couple times where it'd be like they'd be devastated because their wife or their girlfriend died and, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of, it's hard. I mean, it, it was hard for me even. I had this one guy whose wife had died and he was just like the most depressed person I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And by like month four, it was just like, I don't know what else I can keep saying. Like, yeah, it's true. I mean, I've, uh, one of the first things that I learned when I lost, I lost somebody close to me is that you can sometimes be surprised by the people who do reach out to try to help you. And you can sometimes also be surprised by who doesn't. And, uh, I think that this is right, yeah. a good exploration of that. Yeah. I mean, grief is, grief is weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I think this, this movie circling back does a good job of showing that because it's, it's literally a character who was like, Basically, um, uh, brain farting on the right terminology, but basically, you know, trading in positive feedback for her uh, fake trauma and fake loss. But once she gets real loss, suddenly, like, she's not getting the help she needs. Exactly. Exactly. And and they, they make sure to juxtapose this with some of her attitudes earlier in the film. Uh, they take her back to the she goes back to the park uh, to hear the sound of children playing and she doesn't take comfort in it. Uh, she has a brief interaction with a man who's just he's there with his kid, obviously, and he's just like having a good time. He's like, oh, you know, that one over there is mine. And and as soon as she has to actually really engage with the kind of social games that she had been playing before, she just can't do it. Like she has to walk away and she can't even talk to this guy. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, 
So somewhere in here, we we cut to um, Annika, and she's at a tattoo parlor getting a tattoo of Esther's name on her back. Um, and you're still kind of wondering if Esther might have lived because of that weird suggestive stuff before. But now we find out for sure, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but I mean, yeah, this is at least hinting that. Well, I mean, no, it must. It, I don't know. I mean, there's all these. The thing is, there's all these newspaper articles and there's detectives. So, like, I don't know that the whole she might still be alive thing holds up because, like, there's literally news stories about how she's dead. Yeah, it, it and doesn't. There were detectives that went and saw the body. Yeah, and Annika herself, you know, she's talking to the tattoo artist. She, you know, the tattoo artist doesn't know what happened. And, you know, she's asking, oh, do you love her? Or how do you feel about her? And she's like, well, she's fucking dead or something like Like, she's really pissed off about Esther dying. And yeah, it's something answers. like she'll probably like this. And she goes, no, she won't. She's oh, dead. Yeah, it's, it's very blunt i mean it's exactly the conversational style that annika has from her personality but uh well she's clearly pretty upset by all this and she's the yeah rest... and it's established also that she went to prison for a little bit yeah that was weird it was like a four-week prison stint and the way that they talk about it it makes it almost seem like she was arrested for the assault on esther in the opening scene but then they never talk about why she was sent to jail um i i saw it as it was just a random assault yeah, charge I, I think that's the case but the, it was kind of at first suggestive to me that somehow that was related, but yeah, it, it probably was not. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, basically Annika is complaining about, well, complaining is maybe too harsh of a word because her girlfriend did just get murdered. Um, yeah. but you know, she's saying the, like people are trying to say that she killed these, this couple's kid, which is total bullshit. Um, and she doesn't want to believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she, uh, which is ironic since she is a child murderer. True. True. Uh, but yeah, she's, uh, you know, another thing is that she still doesn't really know what's going on with the truck. I, I think like she doesn't understand that the truck oh, might yeah, be out there. Cause she doesn't, she thinks someone just stole her truck too. Yeah. She hasn't pieced together that, um, Esther actually was the one who took her truck. Yeah, and she also doesn't know who this family is because she can't even get the name because a child was involved in this murder. So the newspapers have kept the names confidential at the parents' request. So, you know, she yeah. ends up, you know, steamrolling into whatever newspaper she found an article on that the tattoo artist pointed her to. She, like, just blasts her way in there and, until uh, she finds the reporter that did the story. And she's, like, harassing him to, to give her the information about who this family is so she can find them. And he admits he doesn't actually... I saw this as this was legit. Like he didn't actually know the names so yeah. they wouldn't give him the name. Yeah. I mean, that might be the case. He, he, I think he says that he could try to find out some other details for her, but like that he doesn't even necessarily have them himself. Yeah. Um, and it, it's not like a big paper either. This is, they make a point to say this is a small town. So it's clearly just like a small local newspaper. So it's not like he's got the greatest reach. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely, he's absolutely befuddled by the fact that this woman is storming in here. And, uh, I mean, it, it, she ends up getting ejected by security because she's being so, like, obnoxious and aggressive. Um, but, you know, she leaves there, and I, I don't even remember exactly how she finds their names at this point. Do you, do you remember how she finds out who it is? or how, Oh, it's because of the cops. Okay, so the, the cops... Oh, right, yeah, the her, yeah. there's a detective that knocks on her door at one point and says, you know, we found your truck on this, on such and such a street, 
And then she goes to the street and looks across and sees the house. Yeah. Yeah. So like in the background interspersed in some of these scenes, you've got, you know, the household scenes with, um, you know, was it Patrick and Melanie and Patrick is, you know, he waits a while and eventually goes back to work and he has some office job and he can't handle it. He still cannot stop thinking about this and trying to understand what happened. Uh, And he's just completely despondent and sometimes aggressive to Melanie in the way that he talks to her. But when he goes back to work at some point in the, in his first day, he like just puts his fist through a wall because he's so frustrated by something. And um, at, at that point, well, what it is, is he calls um, a detective that was working on his on the case of his uh, his son. And he mentions there's this red truck that was that's been on our street since my son was murdered. So I went in and then they go, well, you can't. <laughs> what do you mean you went in? And he says, well, it was unlocked. And they go, you can't break into the truck. And he's like, well, I got the registration and the name on it. And they're understandably very like, just let us handle this. Like you're going to tamper with the evidence and then we're not even going to be able to use it. Yep. Yeah. And so the cops do finally check that out. And that's how they come around to Annika's place and then start asking her questions and, and say that she's going to have to come down. I think they say that she's going to have to come down to the station and they have to impound her car as evidence for a while. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so there's all that. But that's that's eventually how Annika backtracks it to um, Melanie and Patrick's uh, house. Yeah. And uh, so basically um, before this, we have a scene between. Uh, Melon. Oh, wait, sorry. Okay, so before this, uh, Patrick actually ends up going to a support group himself, mm-hmm. and he they ask him to you know say his name, and he happens to say it, and he he mentions, I can't stop thinking about my dead son and what I would do to the person that killed them if I could. Yeah, and so he's talking to somebody who this all seems familiar and this random support group person says, Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Your wife couldn't come or, or something like that. That indicates he has an idea of who Patrick is, but Patrick doesn't know who he is. And, uh, you know, they get yeah. to talking and Patrick is very confused. And the guys like start, starts to get flustered because something about the two stories isn't adding up. Cause Patrick doesn't know Melanie's been cruising support groups. Um, but he figures yeah, it out because <laughs> he says, Melanie has been going, she's been going to these support groups for basically a year. And he's like, how? And he says, my son only died a month ago. That that can't be right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I mean, eventually, like he confronts her about it back home. And I, I don't remember even exactly how much they talk about it. But uh, he develops some pretty hostile feelings toward his wife when he can't get some clear answers about what she's been doing at these support groups and saying about their son. Yeah. Yeah. He gets out the shotgun. I mean, he breaks a he breaks a dish first. Tells her to stop lying to him, and then he goes, leaves the room, and comes back with the shotgun. Yeah, because he think because he 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 says something about how he heard Esther and Melanie talking right before he got back in with the shotgun and shot Esther. So he's suspecting now that you know this was staged in some way, or maybe they the two know each other, and Melanie's not forthcoming with how they knew each other, which she's not being. So he's his intuition is right to a degree, um, right? Yeah, and, but you know he pulls a shotgun on her, and that's uh, a bit of a change from where things were you know they were bickering a bit about bath time but this is a little bit different I, i'd say and um right yeah this is a complete this is escalation but um ultimately he sort of comes to his senses and puts the shotgun down and says i just i can't be with you anymore i have to leave yeah um and he leaves the shotgun in the corner which will come back later 
Yeah, but I, you know, I got to say this is um, another. This was a genuinely good tense moment that uh, that I think was well staged. I genuinely had no idea if he was going to shoot her or not because he's done a good job of presenting himself as you know unpredictable in in light of what has yeah, happened. Yeah, I mean, like there's a scene before this we forgot to mention where he's just he hasn't been going to work and he's just been sort of in the house and he's staring out the window at this truck, just like not moving. And uh, Melanie tries to like cheer him up like oh you should go back to work your dad called and he just sort of grabs her by the arm and drags her to the window and goes that truck has been here since our son died so he's very unhinged yep and and whatever difficulties between the two were under the surface are now pretty much all right in everybody's face uh and you know we we can't help but think back to the fact that okay well at uh, some at some point melanie was telling support groups that both her child and her husband were dead uh so Right, definitely she mentioned the husband on purpose. Yeah. So we've got these sort of underlying desires of hers that she, whether she legitimately wants them dead or it's just some kind of a quirk in her personality that she's trying to deal with in some strange way by going to support groups, who knows? But the theme of, of proxy is that, you know, people enacting violence on others on, on their behalf. Um, and so... Right, yeah, and, and you're right. This scene is done well because he sort of breaks the plate and then he wordlessly leaves the room and the way it's framed is like you're on sort of her perspective where he, he goes out the door, but you can't see where he's going and you can't really hear anything. And then he just comes back with a shotgun. Yep. And then when he says, I have to go for a, a little bit, I was wondering if he was going to kill himself because he's got his back to Melanie and he's like holding the shotgun. Yep. I thought that but too. Then they sort of quickly establish he just means he needs to get a divorce. Yeah, yeah, I think that and was... he puts the shotgun down. Yeah, I think that was really brilliantly done where, you know, this guy's so unpredictable, this could go in like three or four different directions and none of them are really good. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but from here we cut to... Um, Annika is in the car with the tattoo artist who's apparently going to give her a ride to her truck. And she has gotten some uh, some things for Annika. And she basically says, I don't want to know what you're going to do with that. And she's like, good. <laughs> Drops her off where her truck is, and that this is when Annika looks at the house directly across from where the truck is parked and realizes, okay, it's probably this house. And then when she, oh yeah, so she knocks on the door and Melanie answers and she recognizes Melanie because she was following Esther before. Yeah. So this is when she knows for sure, like, okay, this is, this is. These were the people that she came to see. Actually, and, and before that happens, there, there is a brief scene that was kind of, oddly staged that I, I do think is important uh it, at some point melanie is wandering through a house and i think you're supposed to think it's her own house uh she starts to hear you know some sexual moaning and and groaning right, yeah and you know she creeps around wherever she is and she peeks in on a bed and she sees annika basically naked and masturbating and it turns out to be the bed that she and esther were having sex on so she so melanie's actually in esther's house uh and that comes back you know, here when Annika shows up at Melanie's house, you know, at, at some point, you know, she she comes in and basically, I forget how she gets her tied up, but Annika's obviously a person. Exp- I think she just knocks her out, honestly. Okay. Yeah. But at some point, like she she asks Melanie, how do you know me? Because she can tell that Melanie recognizes Annika. Yeah. Yeah. That Annika. Yeah. So uh, she says, you know, I had followed you or something to that effect. Yeah. And but uh but you basically Melanie gets strapped to a chair, uh tied up. 
Uh, and you know, Esther wants some answers and she, she pulls a, pulls in this bag that her, her tattoo artist friend had gotten for her and starts pulling stuff out and you get a, you get a hammer. Um, what else is in there? Well, there was a, in there, you know, she starts interrogating Melanie on the assumption that Melanie and Esther were sleeping together. So at first this is kind of a jealous lover sort of thing, but pretty quickly, Annika, obviously she's got some gaydar and she can pretty quickly tell that Melanie's legitimately not a homosexual person. So, um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that Annika doesn't still want to take some shit out on her. And so you you pretty quickly see, you know, in that bag, along with the hammer that she's presumably going to use to beat the hell out of Melanie, they show a, a red strap on dildo that presumably was what they were using when Annika and Esther were in bed earlier having sex. So now we've got the color red coming back again. And, uh, you know, at this point, it's pretty clear that that's, you know, what was going on earlier between the two of them, that, that it was consensual. Um yeah, and she mentions about um, Melanie's husband. She's like, men don't really know what it's like to get fucked, so I'm going to fuck your husband. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a Which, delightful. Uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm upset or not that they didn't have that scene, but uh, yeah, pretty quickly, I guess that becomes moot because uh, Annika hears the shower upstairs, and she goes, "He's still in the. He's taking a shower, isn't he?" And she goes, "No, no, he isn't." She goes. You're fucking sneaky bitch. He's just been upstairs taking a shower. So she goes upstairs. Um, and we never actually get to see what Annika sees, but I thought it was implied that Patrick had been murdered and left in the shower. Yeah, that either happens. I mean, it happens off screen one way or the other, but it either happens right before the confrontation between Melanie and Annika or right after. Like the way that they stage it, it could have been either or, I think. But probably it makes more sense that Annika did see the husband dead in the shower. Um, I think that makes it makes the story a little bit tighter. Yeah. And so um, Annika hears uh, Melanie basically fall in the chair to break it so she can get out of her bonds and go get the and shotgun. Then, and she gets the shotgun and she's like got the barrel pointed on her while Annika's on the stairs. And she this is when we see Melanie sort of. Her personality seems to change a tiny bit. She seems to grow a little more malicious. A little bit. I think that's fair. And uh, she basically... This is when Annika realizes, like, oh, you're no wonder Esther liked her. You're... I mean, there's a line before (laughs) where Melanie says, like, Esther was crazy. And Annika's like, yeah, I know. That's why the sex was so good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's why she's such a good fuck, I think, is how she says it. Right. And so this is like the reversal of that where she's like, no wonder Esther liked you. You're fucked. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And um, and um, yeah. And um, this uh, moment in particular. Um, God damn it. I'm going to have to look up the name of the movie. There was a movie. Um, that the woman that was in. Uh, Gone Girl was in recently that was on Netflix about basically this really sleazy um, oh taking care of you yeah Rosamund Pike I was going to watch that it was like the the caretaker maybe or the person who takes care of you is that what you're talking about I got to look up the oh I care a lot I think is what it was called but there's a very similar dynamic in that that character is all about like getting attention and money and exposure for being such a good person when in reality She's just like intentionally fucking these elderly people out of their homes and their social security and all their assets. So this sort of reminded me of this um, in this moment, because you 
we sort of cut and you assume that a passage of time has occurred. Two years, and, I think. Um, what's that? I think she says two years uh, in the dialogue that comes up is, is how much time. So, I mean, I guess the question is whether that was real or whether this is just all in her head. But anyway, the next scene is she's on like basically a news talk show and they're talking about, you know, you wrote this book and about how people deal, can deal with uh, losing uh, a child and, you know, what you can do. And the news before this had specified, you know, she lost her son and then another attacker came in that she happened to fend off. And, you know, we got to see Melanie having all this attention and exposure and sympathy put towards her in the news um, feature. But her- yeah, but it all looks really fake. She's she's putting on this very sugary personality, which is is part of how she presented herself in the first part of the movie to Esther. And it's it's very yeah. quickly, she's she does this interview on this news show, and it, very quickly she she talks about how she's transformed this horrible event into something positive, and she uses all this language of like this this wholesome positivity culture that kind of exists. Uh, and and I thought that was a particularly good touch because. A lot of that is actually really toxic stuff, the way that it can be presented. And, and I think that that's part of the the satire that's going on here is, is like there there's this massive market where you can just kind of sell easy answers to people um, yeah, that, that don't really have any have bearing. Yeah, whether you have a real tragedy or not, you can basically go, well, this happened to me. And actually, it's been proven that sometimes that's fake. Uh, there was that guy who wrote the the novel about how he was a cocaine addict that had made that entirely up. Oh yeah. The million little pieces, James Frey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he was just, he totally made that up. Yeah. And and Um, so like, she kind of spouts some, some things that sound like platitudes about healing from grief and healing from traumatic events. And you know, the way that it's presented in, in this glitzy, very wholesome newscasting, popular television entertainment format. It almost feels even like a little bit um, like that, unsettling sitcom scene in natural born killers where it's like something doesn't match between the tone of what we're seeing and the fact that it's like mediated a bit and what we understand to have happened. So like there's something disconnected there and she wants the attention. Yeah. But yeah. But, uh, then we, we sort of cut back and you realize this might've all just been in Melanie's head because she's still where she was before the news coverage and before the either real or imagined passage of time. And she's just got the shotgun. Um, no, I mean, it, I think it's heavily implied it's fake because she's talking to someone. She's like doing the interview. Yeah, it was in her head. They, they kind of slammed back to her perspective. Yeah, and then at some point, Anika goes, who, who are you talking to? And yeah. she smiles and then you, know, you hear the gunshots. Yep. Uh, and so, yeah, basically, you know, the fact that in her head she was talking on the news program about how her husband had died. We we know that she killed her husband at some point. I I, th- I assume that yeah, yeah. she was either going to do it after she kills Annika or she did that before. And that's, you know, he was in the shower dead at the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's. Yeah, that's the that's movie. it, I think. Yeah, I don't think anything happens after that. No, I think that's it. Um. So, yeah, I guess uh, to get my negative stuff out of the way, some of the performances from some people were maybe not amazing. Generally, the main actors do a decent job. It's just just little things like uh, peripheral, more or less like extras with lines that maybe don't have the best performances. But, you know, for what budget they have, which I assume was quite low, I mean, basically, I told you off air that, like, I think the sheer bat shitness of this movie makes up for any <laughs> any issues with the uh, 
any issues with like action quality basically yeah yeah i can see that i mean i think the i think the woman who played esther and the woman who played annika did a really good job i think it's sometimes yeah. melanie uh, the performance there could have been a little stronger um but it's not it's not that i would call it bad i think it's maybe just a little bit lower tier from from the woman who was playing yeah, esther I, mean, I think it's also in juxtaposition between the performances of um esther and annika I thought yeah. the woman that played Annika did a really good job, honestly. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, um, but yeah, any, yeah any other, I mean, yeah. it's it's a very cruel movie, yes. Yeah, I, I think that um, um, the the highlights for me were, were that middle scene and and the way they wrapped it up. Uh, you know, it's not the most innovative thing in the world, and and some of the twists you could probably figure. I, I, some of them I think I I got onto a little bit sooner than the movie really wanted me to, but. It, yeah. it didn't it didn't spoil anything for me like most of the twists are not going to blow your mind but they're also effective and useful at the same time so you know it's good i think yeah no i liked it um i watched this on i think it was prime okay. um yeah i have an amc package now that i watched that through um but yeah uh i liked it so yeah proxy 2013 uh go check it out and uh, in the meantime, um, this has been Celluloid Citizens. We're on Twitter at Celluloid Sits, anchor.fm slash Celluloid Sits. And we're on YouTube. Uh, yeah, so check all that out. And oh, I, I think I've been forgetting. We do have a Patreon. Uh, there's currently a mini episode on the Midnight Gospels and an essay I did on the rise of cults in um, horror films, the recent horror films. And, uh, yeah, eventually we're going to have a torture porn special on there. And, uh, Brian and I might be covering the Teddy Perkins episode of Atlanta. So, yeah, a lot of good stuff on the horizon. Um, yeah, and until then, this has been Cellulite Citizens. I'm Sean M. Thompson. I'm Christopher Burke. And, yeah, I mean... Don't go, uh, seeking pathological attention. Right. Right.